I actually want to kind of connect back to the video. Some of you might have missed, you, you maybe came in a little bit late this morning, had this awesome video where Faye was hosting it, Fernanda. Uh, she works uh, in our, our uh, video team and is an incredible part of our church community. Um, she's Brazilian. Uh, originally, uh, but if you saw the video, I just loved, uh, she was celebrating her first 4th of July uh, as an American citizen. Uh, some of us got to go to this incredible ceremony for naturalization, uh, this immigration. We were there, friends and family, over a hundred people um, were, were sworn in, made an oath and allegiance to the United States, an incredible way to celebrate. I'm looking around, I see some of you, you were there. Yeah, would you... Let's encourage her, and uh, it's just awesome. I know some of you in here have, have gone through that process yourself, and uh, it's an incredible picture of family. It's an incredible reminder of what it means even to be part of God's family. And so just a really cool reconnect there. Also, I want to say this morning, we have kids who are joining us, which is awesome. And here's why. We had this crazy storm. I mean, these storms never happen in Florida. But last night we had this storm. Maybe some of you experienced it. I'm told part of the air conditioning unit over in the children's wing, it was storm related. Part of it was something else related. No matter what, it went down. And it's hot, as you can imagine, over there. And so uh, we got notified last night that kids would be coming in this room, and we are so glad that you guys are here. So thanks for coming to Big Church and hanging out with us. It's awesome to have you here. In fact, when I found out last night that you were going to be joining us, um, here's a heads up. We're going to we're gonna, I'm going to talk about a movie I saw last week. Maybe some of you kids saw Toy Story 4. I'll talk about that in a little bit. But I want to talk about Toy Story 1 for a second. So I kind of added this this morning as a little bonus, knowing that you're going to be here. But, but kids, we're going through, in big church here, we're talking about Jesus stories. And I know you do that uh, in children's church too. We're talking about ways that Jesus uh, had conversations and, and, and talked to and, and listened to the people that were around him. And we're talking about the way that these stories made people come to life. It awakened them. And that's what we're doing this series. And I started thinking back to uh, Toy Story 1. You guys, you might remember. I'll try to refresh your memory. I'll try to get the details right. Toy Story 1, there's uh, Buzz Lightyear, Space Ranger, right? You remember, you remember Buzz? Uh, there's this boy, Andy. And Andy wakes up on Christmas morning. He's been hoping that he would get this new toy, Buzz Lightyear. He tears open the package. There's Buzz. Uh, after they open up presents on Christmas morning, he runs upstairs, throws Buzz in the room, goes downstairs. You remember what happens in Toy Story, right? When adults aren't around, when, when people aren't around, the, the toys come to life. And so there's this incredible um, dilemma that Buzz and Woody are facing. Buzz wakes up, right? Here's a quick snapshot uh, of him. Buzz wakes up and, and uh, he starts talking to some of the other toys and he comes to meet Woody. You remember Woody? He's just kind of an ordinary toy, doesn't have all the cool electrical stuff that Buzz Lightyear has. You know, you pull a cord on the back of, of Woody's back and you know, there's a snake in my boot. That's kind of what he yells out. Buzz has all these other buttons, all this cool stuff. And, uh, and Woody starts having a crisis. He starts questioning his own place among the toys and his popularity with, with Andy. 
And so there's this big existential crisis for adults that just, for kids, that just means he was scared. He was asking some big questions. Both Woody was asking them uh, and Buzz was asking them. And in fact, there's this big kind of debate, um, this argument that, that Buzz has with Woody because Woody's trying to tell Buzz, you're not, you're not a real space ranger. You're just a toy. And Buzz can't believe it, right? And so what does Buzz do? He goes and he tries to fly. Kids, we don't try that at home, right? Bad idea. Um, Buzz tries to fly. Of course, it doesn't work. And I love this snapshot of this, this scene that happens where as Buzz tries to fly, he hits the ground. He looks over in awe and surprise. He can't believe that he couldn't fly. He sees his arm broken there. But there's something far greater that's broken that Buzz is starting to realize. It's this sense of who he belongs to, his purpose, his place. And so as I was thinking about Buzz and sort of Toy Story and that whole incredible series, I was thinking about this story that we're looking at, this Jesus encounter that we're going to look at today in the scriptures where Jesus is interacting with this man who had been sick for 38 years. It wasn't a broken arm, but what we learn and kind of put together from the scripture, from the story is his legs didn't work quite all that right. And he was broken, not just physically, but he was struggling with questions of identity and a sense of belonging. And, and what, what, what was it that made up his existence? And so we're going to talk about. So if you have your scriptures, uh, turn to John chapter 5. That's where we are in this journey where we're studying the gospel of John, the fourth gospel. Uh, turn there in your Bibles, or if you have your worship guide, you can look at that, and the scripture will also come up. They'll be up on the screens, and I'm going to talk through. Basically, we're going to look at the scripture in two parts, kind of part A, part B. We'll go through part A. I'll describe some of what's happening in this setting, and we're going to unpack and see what happens, not just to this man, but what it means for us today. So here's how the story goes. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish uh, festivals, now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which uh, is surrounded by five uh, covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Imagine that, 38 years being sick and suffering in this way. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. If you remember the last month or so, uh, we've been tracking geographically where Jesus is moving and, and speaking and interacting. Uh, he started in Judea. He was moving north, went through Samaria. We talked about the intersection, the conversation he had with the woman at the well, uh, the transformation that she experienced in her life, and then the way that village was transformed by her witness her experience, her conversation of what Jesus transformed in her life as the living water, the impact that that had on the community there. Then Jesus now, or then he, he traveled even further north because he was actually on his way to Galilee, and that's where he heals. We were talking the last couple weeks, uh, the royal official's son. His son was on his deathbed, 
And Jesus heals him as well. And so we're coming actually to this third miraculous sign that John chronicles in, in, in his uh, gospel account. And this is what's happening. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's going there. He's coming back to Jerusalem for a Jewish festival. There were three primary annual festivals that took place in Jerusalem. Uh, one was uh, Passover, one was Pentecost, and one was uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. And the best that we can sort of put together in terms of the time frame here is that Jesus was going back to Jerusalem most likely to celebrate Passover. And as he is on his way to this festival, he passes by this pool in order to get to the temple. And he pauses there. But I want to talk about this pool for a second. When I read a scripture like that and I see a word like pool... From Florida, I know what a pool looks like, right? I'm thinking my backyard pool type of thing. Some of us have already gotten in the pool or at the beach because it's so hot outside. Um, it's a little bit of a different kind of pool. I'll show you a picture of it in just a second. But before we get there, there was a lot of superstition that surrounded this pool. There was a lot of mixed ideas about what happened around this pool. In fact, the reason that there were so many uh, people who were disabled around this pool area is because there was this belief that several times a year the water would stir. And they couldn't figure out why the water stirred, but it would stir. And the first person that got into the water when it stirred, they were healed of whatever disease they were suffering from. That was the idea. It was, it was this superstitious kind of mythology that surrounded this pool area. And so Jesus is coming to that. Now, when you think about it, I, I heard some stories, um, you know, even growing up around Jesus and what it must have been like growing up, going to uh, a festival like this. As a, as a Jewish boy with, with uh, Mary and Joseph, they would have traveled every year to, to these Jewish festivals and, and would have passed by this pool. And so there is a, sort of a, a story that's fun to think about. Not sure how true it is on a scale of one to ten. It's not in the Bible, uh, but it's, it's certainly fun to think about, especially if you have kids or grandkids or, or nephews, nieces. You know what it's like for little kids when they get around water, right? What do they have to do? They have to touch the water. They have to sometimes get in the water. They are usually covered in water. I know this because just a couple days ago on 4th of July, we were at some friend's house swimming in, the, in their lake um, for a few hours. We got out. We're packing our stuff up. We're drying off Wyatt, my son. He's 10. And we're getting everything back to the van. We're loading up. Turn around. Where's Wyatt? We backtrack to figure out where he is. And of course, he's already doing cannonballs back in the lake again. He saw, hey, five minutes, parents are doing some adult stuff. I still got some time to kill in, in the water, right? So it's not too hard to imagine Jesus growing up, passing this pool several times a year, maybe splashing his hand in the water, maybe playing in the water, maybe getting covered in water. There, Walking together as a family, Mary and Joseph start getting ahead of Jesus. He starts playing. Joseph turns to Mary, where's Jesus? I thought you had him. No, I thought you had him. Turn around. Jesus is 50 yards back, trailing, playing in the water. They get him. Jesus, here we go again. You're going to the party, the festival, soaking wet. Meanwhile, behind them, it's chaos. The first person got in the pool. Somebody got healed. Nobody knows why. Probably not 
really what happened, but fun to imagine. We don't have a lot of stories of what it was like when Jesus was growing up. And so it's, it's kind of fun to imagine that maybe, maybe that's what happened. Most likely, as we've discovered, as archaeologists sort of unearthed uh, this part of Jerusalem, as they excavated uh, these pools, they actually came to find that these reservoirs, the cisterns that existed around this pool, fed into uh, this pool area and, and probably stirred it naturally as it was feeding water in there a few times a year. And, and, and around that part of the world, they've studied there's minerals that, that would flow into that water, probably had some therapeutic type of, of healing uh, agencies among them. That's most likely what happened. But in this case, we actually get a picture of what happens when the great healer, when Jesus shows up around this area and he comes and he not only awakens and heals on the external, the physical body that was broken for this man, but he goes far deeper than that. And that's what we're going to talk about today. What does that even mean for us today? It says that it was near the Sheep Gate. Again, I love how the Holy Spirit inspires uh, the gospel writers, things that they include, things that they don't include. Just a little detail, you know, it's the pool over by the Sheep Gate. It's kind of like when you're giving directions to Northland, um, you know, you're telling a friend how to get there. It's the church in between the bar and the dog track. Um, you know, it's just, it's just a landmark. Um, and uh, if you go to the bar, turn around, you know, come back to the church, don't stay at, at the bar. Um, but just a, a reference point here where, where John is giving us a picture of exactly where this pool is located. Let me give you a couple snapshots of this. It's a, it's a little blurry because we try to blow it up as big as possible, but not exactly what you probably had in your mind's eye, right? Ex not my, when I read the scripture and I saw a pool, that is not what I imagined. It was massive, a huge area. Again, archaeologists were, were able to even, um, by unearthing this, uh, this space, um, you know, measure out the walls. It says that there were five colonnades. Basically, if you think of a long rectangle, um, you've got the two long walls, one shorter on each end. The fifth would have cut uh, through the middle. Um, the Sheep Gate would have been in the northeastern part of this old city. Um, the Sheep Gate, why was it there? Because the sheep had a one-way ticket, right, to the temple um, as, as sacrifices were made. And so the Sheep Gate was sort of an important detail uh, in, this, in this scene. Zooming in a little bit more, uh, Robusti, this great Venetian Italian painter from the, the Renaissance period, kind of capturing in even more detail what it might have been, been like for a multitude, for many people to be gathering in this space, space who are sick, who needed healing, who are experiencing great pain. You can imagine what that environment must have sounded like, what it must have looked like. And so I love that Robusti kind of tries to give this image of what it might have been like to have so many people packed into that space. And it even raises the question, how did Jesus single out this man and that kind of zooms in a little tighter to this painting by a Spaniard Murillo uh, from 1667. An incredible picture of Jesus reaching out and that body language that he captures there of this invalid, sort of with this, I've done everything I can kind of body posture. 
And we'll come back to this painting in a second. But let's talk about Bethesda, this pool. Why was it named Bethesda? Why would John put that little word, that little detail in there? If you think about other references that you, you might remember, stories from the Bible, the word Beth, uh, that, that prefix there, um, it actually means house. In fact, just kind of recapping some other places where um, very uh, incredible things happened. We've got Bethel, um, house of God, El, Elohim. This, uh, if you remember in the Old Testament, this encounter that God has with Abram, all right? And so there's house of God, house of El, uh, Bethsaida, house of fish. If you remember in, in Bethsaida, that's where uh, Jesus took, he spit in, in the dirt and made mud. And he was interacting with the blind man and he put the mud in his eyes and he was healed. Uh, Bethsaida, the house of fish, being uh, near the shores of Galilee. And so a lot of fish was caught and sold there in the market. Bethpage, you might remember also being connected to Bethany, a house of figs. This is where uh, Jesus sent the disciples. Just before he was crucified, he sent the disciples to go get a donkey and and return that colt to him so that he could ride that donkey um, into, into Jerusalem. And then Bethlehem. Think of the significance of that word, house of bread. This place that was known for, for artisan bread. And out of that, Jesus is born, the great artist, who St. Bonaventure uh, calls the eternal art. And Jesus calls himself, saying, I am the bread of life. Incredible significance for Jesus being born in Bethlehem. And then Bethesda actually means house of mercy. Think about that for a second. Jesus is on his way to the temple. He's on his way to a space where even non-religious people would say, that temple, that's where God resides. That's God's house. And Jesus pauses on the way to big church. And he pauses and says, this is God's house. This is God's people right here. It's an incredible picture. I was thinking back of what it means for Jesus to model this and for us to understand what the church is all about. We are intended by design to be a house of mercy. I was thinking back to when I started attending uh, Northland when we moved here. I was in college. It was 1993. And, and early on, I started hearing stories as I came to worship services of people who came to be a part of, of Northland initially because they needed healing. They needed a place to just experience some mercy. In fact, a lot of the stories that we heard then that we still hear today are people that would just sit sort of quietly in spaces, trying not to be seen too much because they're going through a divorce, a difficult family situation. They've just been diagnosed with some tough news There's something transitional happening with work and they just needed to come. Maybe they came from a difficult church experience and they just needed to sit and to experience the healing that comes around the worship of who God is, what He has done around the Word and around the sacraments. I've also learned as you have over the years being a part of this church for a long time, many incredible ways that this community, this congregation 
has modeled what it means to be a house of mercy, things that have come out of this church. Some of you might know the story of Life Hope, child care, the little building back here behind the skating rink. Some of our congregation started hearing stories of how there were these brave, courageous, single moms who have found themselves in a situation where they're trying to raise this newborn, but they don't have the education to get a good job. They don't have the connections to find the right kind of employment. And what do I do now with this new baby? And so out of this congregation, some people said, let's, let's design, let's build this space where moms could drop off uh, their, their newborn for, for a period of time and go through a process where holistically they can get back on their feet and get back on track and be a part of this faith community, but give them the tools and the resources to raise a family now. Other things like ministers on duty, Stephen's ministry. Pastor Kevin wrote a great article that was sent out kind of in the e-blast this week talking about the ways that, that people from this congregation are available during the week as people call in or they just walk in from the community needing prayer, needing somebody to encourage them, maybe even needing some financial resources. Benevolence ministry over the years has taken on a lot of different forms. When I think back on the 23, 24 years I've been at Northland, every five or six years we do benevolence a little bit different. We're looking at how to do that now. How do we care for more people? How do we help people that come in from the outside as well as people within our own community that have financial needs? Healing services, we've got one this evening, we'd love for you to be a part of, come back. Um, a small group of people that are praying for those that are sick in our church, in our community. Lots of ways, celebrate recovery, many, many things. That we could go on and on, the, the incredible ways that God is working in and through this congregation. But the reality is, no matter how many things we try to actually do on this campus, it will never amount to the ways that this congregation is sent as agents of mercy back into the community where we do most of our lives. I was thinking about this scripture where we're reminded that while we do gather in this temple, this big, big space, this church, we gather together, we also are reminded from the Bible that, don't you know, remember, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. What does that mean for us to see Jesus pause and, and, and give attention to and see and, and model for us what the church looks like or should look like today? It means that we we are designed to respond to God for the benefit of others. We have been agents, recipients of mercy. We go as a network of life responders, of, of, of those who can go and be the gospel and be mercy to those in our neighborhoods, in our work, in our schools. We are mobile temples of mercy. That's the way communities are transformed. That's the way cities are transformed all around the world by God's design. Let's keep going though. Second part of this story, let's dive into what happens as Jesus sees this man lying there, learned that he had been in this condition for a long time. He asked him, do you want to get well? 
And sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. Again, there's that that superstitious mythology around that pool. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. That once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. A little bit of controversy there. We'll pick up on that last sentence next week and talk about the Sabbath. But let's talk a little bit about what Jesus is saying in the second part, what's actually happening, happening in the second part of this story. It says that Jesus saw him. Two meta-narrative, two big themes that come out of the gospel of John, and we see it in this story. In the whole of the gospel, you see it repeated, and we get it right here in this one story, two different ones. First of all, John is always careful to highlight the way Jesus saw people, the way he moved towards people. In fact, even that word learned, uh, a better translation for that, some of your Bibles might actually say he knew instead of learned. Jesus looked at this man the way he looks at each one of us, and he knows our condition. He knows where we stand today. He knows the struggles that we're going through. He knows the baggage that we're carrying. He knows the pain, the hurt. And he sees this man and he moves towards him. It's an incredible picture of the knowledge that Jesus has supernaturally, even pre-Genesis 1-1. We talked about how the scriptures remind us, Old Testament and New Testament, that when God made us, he didn't just create us biologically in the space and time that we live in today that's our birth date on our birth certificate. The scriptures remind us that he knew us even before the foundation of the world. That's the level of knowledge and thought and care and intimacy that our creator has in making us as image bearers of himself. And he asked this question, do you want to get well? It's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, it seems a little redundant if you think about it. This man has been suffering for 38 years. Biblical scholars have debated on on what was Jesus actually saying in this question. And there's kind of two sides of the coin. Some people have said, well, what he's actually doing in asking this question to this man is he's, he's, because he sees the heart of who this man is, he's actually pushing this man to contemplate How much do you want to hold on to the past? How much are you holding on to the patterns and and the addictions and the things that you have grown a love-hate relationship with? And if you think about it, we've all experienced that at some point in our lives, maybe even now, where there are things that we're holding on to, habits, thought patterns, the way that we treat others, ways that we have been challenged either by God or by others or by both to confront that reality and to make those changes. But what's happened is we actually resist that change. We've grown codependent with that sense. It's, it's that love and hate kind of relationship um, where we, it feels so good, that hurt. 
and we won't let that addiction, we won't let that pattern go. Some think that's what Jesus was asking here. I actually lean to what others have thought when they've read the scripture, that Jesus actually is not asking a question at all. He's actually making a statement, that this is a rhetorical question, that instead of asking him, do you want to get well, Jesus is saying to this man, you don't know who I am, but I know who you are, and I'm about to make you well. And that's the reminder that we have from Scripture today. That's the Jesus, the God that we worship, the one who comes into this space and already knows the struggles, the challenges that we're facing. And his response gives an indication that Jesus is about to do something big here. He's about to overcome all of this man's excuses. In fact, if you look at the short list here of, of what he says back to God, do you want to, or to Jesus, do you want to get well? I don't have the resources. I don't know the right people. I don't have the friends. I don't have the family. I don't have the social structure. No one can help me get into the water. I'm always left behind. No one's thinking about me. Nobody cares about me. In fact, I don't have the strength. I don't have the resources. I'm always last. Think for a moment what type of religious paradigm this guy had established being in that space for all those years. He had concluded that God is one who expects us to have all the right answers, all of our act together. In fact, God would even put this together in such a way that we have to have the physical strength and be the fastest in order to receive a blessing. And Jesus is about to show what it means for all of us, even when we lack faith. That's what's so incredible about this picture here, this story. If you think back to other healings that Jesus did, most often people moved to Jesus and the response that Jesus often gave in healing them was, your faith has made you well. And in this instance, there's nothing like that. This man even lacked faith. He had given up hope. He was at a place where all was lost. The darkness, the lies, the voices that he had been hearing for all those years were embedded in his head and in his heart. And he thought, this is a lost cause. I am a lost cause. How often, maybe even today, we are hearing the lies of the enemy, and instead of hearing the voice of Jesus, we are consumed by these lies of what the enemy would like for us to hear to keep us down. In fact, the other big meta-narrative theme in John that we get from this from these words where, G, where John acknowledges it was just by words spoken, the power of Jesus' voice that made this man well. Get up, pick up your mat and walk, and at once, immediately, he was healed. Not the next day, not hours later, not when all the sinews and muscles and bones could take healing over time, but instantly the power of Jesus' voice. And that's the other big theme that we often get from John's writing, this sonic sound, the power of Jesus' voice. Take it all the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, where the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are there speaking into creation out of nothing. The cosmos are formed. John reminds us here, Jesus speaks life 
is healed, life is reformed. We have these big theological words that jump out. God's omniscience, Christ's knowledge, that he knows exactly where we are, he knows exactly what we're facing, his omnipotence, his power, his ability to heal and overcome scientific logic because he is the great scientist in his omnibenevolence, this truth of Christ's goodness that he reigns, that he is the one who is good all the time. It makes me come back to where we started. Toy Story 4, Woody meets a new toy. In fact, Bonnie, this young girl who has all the toys in her room, it's her first day at kindergarten. And she goes to school, she's scared. By the way, no spoiler here, this all happens right at the beginning of the movie. Um, Goes to school and during craft time, there are pieces of craft taken out of the trash and she uses them, these pieces of, of a spork, these googly eyes that aren't even the same size, and this red pipe wire and a broken, uh, what do you call those, uh, ice cream, a stick. What do you call it? Popsicle sticks, thanks. Break, broken as feet. And of course, Bonnie takes this new toy home that she calls Forky, and uh, when she leaves the room, Forky comes to life. But what does Forky do? What we find out is that because he came from the trash, in fact, there's a conversation that happens. He keeps throwing himself back into the trash constantly. One of the other toys says, why does he keep doing that? Why does he throw himself back into the trash? And Woody has to explain to them because he was made from trash. Again, this existential weight of a question, this dilemma. Where do we come from? Who do we belong to? Who has created us? In fact, there's a conversation later that Woody is having with Forky. He says, why do I have to be a toy? I just want to be back in the trash. And he says, because you have Bonnie's name written on the bottom of your sticks. You have your child's name written on your feet. That makes you a very important toy. What an incredible picture of what's written on each of us, the name of Jesus, that no matter what we might feel, no matter what lies might be creeping into our heads and our hearts, think of the torment that that 38-year-old man had suffered both physically but in questioning his existence, his place, his purpose, his identity that he would never have the resources, never have all that he needs in this life. And Jesus comes and says, I am everything you'll ever need. This incredible picture. And ultimately, it causes us to reflect personally on this question that Jesus is asking each of us today. Do you want to get well? But perhaps it's not a question at all. Jesus is here saying to each of us, I'm here to make you well. No matter where you've come from, whether you're here or online, no matter what kind of lies the enemy is using that are the opposite of mercy, the opposite of healing. In fact, the way that the enemy would rather keep you in a place of feeling broken and ashamed and guilty and a feeling of sense of displacement 
and a lack of belonging and a lack of worth. Jesus invites us today to remember who he is and what he has done and his mercy to each of us. I asked the worship team as we were talking this week if they would pick a couple songs. Often we end with sort of one song, but I I asked, would you pick a couple songs and some scriptures that we could meditate on? And instead of hearing the voice of the enemy, that we would be reminded through some scriptures and through some worship, the promises and faithfulness and hope of who Jesus is, that we would hear his voice over these next 10 minutes, not the voice of the one that would try to hold us down, hold us back, keep us from believing who we belong to. And so I'm going to invite you as we come into this time, these coming minutes, take whatever posture you would like. We're going to stay, we're going to start sitting, but if, if you would like to stand or if you'd like to kneel, whatever posture you want to take, you can stay seated. Think of these words that Jesus is speaking over us, speaking to us about what he thinks of us and our identity, our value, our purpose, and receive these words of mercy if you've come into a place today where you've forgotten the promise, the hope of who Jesus is.